0: 62. The best material most cleverly worked up. A perfect vacuum proved. Mr. H. A. Alessi. The gentleman who has during the last week been lecturing upon animal magnetism. Having stated that one of his patients. While under the magnetic influence. Could see her own inside. The Marquess of Londonderry. Anxious to test the truth of the assertion. Requested the lecturer to operate upon him. And being thrown into the mesmeric sleep. Looked into the inside of his own head and declared he could see nothing in it, O'Connor by O'Connor, why ought the children of a thief to be burnt, because their pastilles their deals. punch, are the London Charivari, volume 1, for the week ending December 11th, 1841, the physiology of the London medical student, 11, how Mr. Muff concludes his evening, essential as sulfuric acid is to the ignition of the platinum and an hydrochromatic lamp, so is half and half to the proper illumination of a medical student's faculties. The Royal College of Surgeons may thunder and the lecturers may threaten, but all to no effect, for, like the slippers in the Eastern story, however often the pots may be ordered away from the dissecting room, somehow or other they always find their way back again with unflinching pertinacity. All the world inclined towards beer knows that the current price of a pot of half and half is fivepence, and by this standard the medical student fixes his expenses. He says he has given three pots for a pair of Berlin gloves, and speaks of a half-crown as a six-pot piece. Mr. Muff takes the goodly measure in his hand, and decapitating its spuma with his pipe, from which he flings it into Mr. Simpson's face, indulges in a prolonged drain, and commences his narrative most probably in the following manner, you know we should all have got on very well if Rap hadn't been such a fool as to pull away the lanterns from the place where they are putting down the wood pavement in the Strand and swear he was a watchman, I thought the crusher saw us, and so I got ready for a bolt, One man who said the blocks had no right to obstruct the footpath, and, shoving down a whole wall of them into the street, voted for stopping to play at duck with them, whilst he was trying how many he could pitch across the strand against the shutters opposite, down came the pulis and off we cut, I had a tight squeak for it, interrupts Mr. Rapp, but I beat them at last, in the dark of the Durham Street Arch, that's a dodge worth being up to when you get into a row near the adelfide Fire away. Muff where did you go? Right up a court to Maiden Lane. In the hope of bolting into the cider cellars. But they were all shut up. And the fire out in the kitchen. So I ran on through a lot of alleys and back slums. Until I got somewhere in Street Giles's. And here I took a cab. Why? You hadn't got an item of tin when you left us. Says Mr. Manhook. Devil a bit did that signify. You know I only took the cab, I'd nothing at all to do with the driver, he was all right in the gin shop near the stand, I suppose. I got on the box, and drove about for my own diversion I don't exactly know where, but I couldn't leave the cab, as there was always a crusher in the way when I stopped. At last I found myself at the large gate of New Square, Lincoln's Inn, so I knocked it till the porter opened it, and drove in as straight as I could. When I got to the corner of the square, by number 7, I pulled up, and, tumbling off my perch, walked quietly along to the Portugal Street Wicket. Here the other porter let me out, and I found myself in Lincoln's Inn Fields. And what became of the cab? asks Mr. Jones. How should I know? It was no affair of mine. I dare say the horse made it right, it didn't matter to him whether he was standing in Street Giles's or Lincoln's Inn. Only the last was the most respectable. I don't see that, says Mr. Manhook refilling his pipe, why, all the thieves in London live in Street Giles's, well, and who live in Lincoln's Inn, Shaw, that's all worn out, continues Manhook. I got to the College of Surgeons, and had a good mind to scud some oyster shells through the windows, only there were several people about fellows coming home to chambers, and the like, so I pattered on until I found myself in Drury Lane, close to a coffee shop that was open, there I saw such a jolly row, Mr. Muff utters this last sentence in the same ecstatic accents of admiration with which we speak of a lovely woman or a magnificent view. What was it about? Eagerly demand the rest of the circle. Why, just as I got in a gentleman of a vivacious turn of mind, who was taking an early breakfast, had shied a soft-boiled egg at the gaslight, which didn't hit it, of course, but flew across the tops of the boxes, and broke upon a lady's head. What a mess it must have made. Interposes Mr. Manhook. Coffee shop eggs are always so very albumy news. Once I found some feathers in one. And a field chick. Observes Mr. Rapp. Knock that down for a good one. Says Mr. Jones. Taking the poker and striking three distinct blows on the mantelpiece. The last of which breaks off the corner. Well. What did the lady do? Commenced kicking up an extensive shiny. Something between crying. Coughing. And abusing. Until somebody in a festoon coat, addressing the assailant, said, he was no gentleman, whoever he was, to throw eggs at a woman, and that if he'd come out he'd pretty soon butter his crumpets on both sides for him, and give him pepper for nothing. The master of the coffee shop now came forward and said, he wasn't going to have no uproar in his house, which was very respectable, and always used by the first of company, and if they wanted to quarrel, they might fight it out in the streets whereupon they all began to barge the master at once, one saying his coffee was all snuff and duckweed, or something of the kind, whilst the other told him he looked as measly as a moldy muffin, and then all of a sudden a lot of half-pint cups and pewter spoons flew up in the air, and the three men began an indiscriminate battle all to themselves, in one of the boxes, fighting quite promiscuous, as the lady properly observed, I think the landlord was worst off though, He got a very queer wipe across the face from the handle of his own toasting fork. And what did you do, Muff? Asks Mr. Manhook. Ah, that was the finishing part of all. I put the gas out, and was walking off as quietly as could be, when some policeman who heard the row outside met me at the door, and wouldn't let me pass. I said I would, and they said I should not, until we came to scuffling, and then one of them calling to some more, told them to take me to Bow Street which they did, but I made them carry me though. When I got into the office they had not any especial charge to make against me, and the old bird behind the partition said I might go about my business, but, as ill luck would have it, another of the unboiled ones recognized me as one of the party who had upset the wooden blocks he knew me again by my deity Talioni. And what did they do to you? Marched me across the yard and locked me up, when to my great consolation and my affliction, I found Simpson crying and twisting up his pocket handkerchief, as if he was wringing it, and hoping his friends would not hear of his disgrace through the times, what a love you are, Simpson, observes Mr. Jones patronizingly, why, how the deuce could they, if you gave a proper name, I hope you called yourself James Edwards, Mr. Simpson blushes, blows his nose, mutters something about his card case and telling an truth, which excites much merriment, and Mr. Muff proceeds, the beak wasn't such a bad fellow after all, when we went up in the morning, I said I was ashamed to confess we were both disgracefully intoxicated, and that I would take great care nothing of the same humiliating nature should occur again, whereupon we were fined twelve pops each, and I tossed sudden death with Simpson which should pay both, he lost and paid down the dibs, we came away, and here we are, the mirth proceeds, and, ere long, gives place to Harmony, and when the cookery is finished, the bird is fatally converted into an anatomical preparation, albeit her interarticular cartilages are somewhat tough, and her lateral ligaments apparently composed of a substance between leather and caoutchouc As afternoon advances, the porter of the dissecting room finds them performing an incantation dance round Mr. Muff, who, seated on a stool placed upon two of the trestles, is rattling some halfpence in a skull, accompanied by Mr. Rapp. Who was performing a difficult concerto on an extemporary instrument of his own invention, composed of the Scotchman's hat, who was still grinding in the museum, and the identical thigh bone that assisted to hang Mr. Muff's patriarchal old hen. Signs of the times, the times are hard, say the knowing ones. Hard, indeed, they must be when we find a doctor advertising for a situation as wet nurse. The following appeared in the Times of Wednesday last, under the head of Want Places, as Webner's. A respectable person, direct to Dr. P.C. Common, sorry, what next? The, of papers, chapter II. the giant stairs, continued, well, says he, you're a match for me any day, and sooner than be shut up again in this dismal old box, I'll give you what you ask for my liberty, and the three best gifts I possess are, this brown cap, which while you wear it will render you invisible to the fairies, while they are all visible to you, this box of Seth by rubbing some of which to your lips, you will have the power of commanding every fairy and spirit in the world to obey your will, and, lastly, this little kipane, which at your word may be transformed into any mode of conveyance you wish, besides all this, you shall come with me to my palace, where all the treasures of the earth shall be at your disposal, but mind, I give you this caution, that if you ever permit the brown cap or the kipane to be out of your possession for an instant, you'll lose them forever, and if you suffer any person to touch your lips while you remain in the underground kingdom, you will instantly become visible, and your power over the fairies will be at an end, a little stick, well, thinks I there's nothing so very difficult in that, so having got the cap, the campaign, and the box of Seth, into my possession, I opened the box, and out jumped the little fellow, now, Felix, says he, touch your lips with the Seth, for we are just at the entrance of my dominions, I did as he desired me, and, Dorothy, if the little chap wasn't changed into a big black looking giant, sitting afore my eyes on a great rock, Lord save us, says I to myself, it's a mercy and a wonder how he ever squeezed himself into that vichy box, why in, sir, says I to him, maybe your honor would have the civility to tell me your name, with the greatest of pleasure, Felix, says he smiling, I'm called Gahoon, the giant, in ages are you though, well, if I thought but he gave me no time to think, for calling on me to follow him, he began climbing up the giant stairs as, as he as I'd walk up a ladder to the hayloft, well, he was at the top before you could cry trapstick, and it wasn't long till I was at the top too, and there we found a gate opening into the hill, and a power of lords and ladies waiting to re-save Mahoon, who I learned was their king and who had been away from his kingdom for twenty years, by a son of his being shut up in the box by some great fairy man, well, when we got inside the gates, I found myself in a most beautiful city, where nobody seemed to mind anything but diversion, the music was the most idiot thing you ever heard in your born days, and there wasn't one less than forty monster Pipers playing before King Mahoon and his friends, as they marched along through great broad streets, a thousand times finer than Great George's Street, in Cork, for, my dears, there was nothing to be seen but gold and jewels, and guineas, lying like sand under our feet, as I had the little brown cap upon my head, I knew that none of the fairy people could see me, so I walked up cheek by jowl with Kin Mithun himself, who winked at me to keep my toe in my brogue, which you may be sure I did, and so we kept on until we came to the king's palace, if other places were grand, this was ten times grander, for the very sight was fairly taken out of my eyes with the dazzling light that shone round about it, and we went into the palace, through two rows of most engaging and beautiful young ladies, and then King nihun took his sami upon his throne, and put upon his head a crown of gold stuck all over with demons, every one of them bigger than a sheep's heart, of course there was a dale of compliments passed amongst the lords and ladies till they got tired of them, and then they sat down to dinner, and, nay bucklish, wasn't there all givings out there? With said milfailta, the whiskey was served out in tubs and buckets. For they'd scorn to drink ale or porter. And as for the eating, there was legions of fat bacon and cabbage for the servants, and a troop of legs of mutton for the kin and his cohort. Well, after we had all ate till we could no more, the kin called out to clear the floor for a dance. No sooner had he said the word than the tables were all whipped away. The pipers began to tune their chaunters. The king's son opened the ball with a mighty beautiful young Crawford. but the mirroring it I laid my eyes upon her I knew her at once for a neighbor's daughter, one Eddie dooley, who had died a few months before, and who, when she was alive, could beat the whole county round at any sort of reel, jig, or hornpipe. The music struck up Tatter Jack Walsh, and maybe it's she that didn't set, and turn, and thrush the boards, until the young prince hadn't as much breath left in his body as would blow out a rushlight and he was forced to sit down puffing and panning, and laving his partner standing in the middle of the room, I couldn't stand that by no means, so jumping upon the floor with a shaloo, I flung my cap into the air, the music stopped of a sudden, and I then recollected that, by throwing off the cap, I had become visible, and had lost one of Mahoon's three gifts, a hundred thousand welcomes, to Vilmae here. as Punch said when he missed mass, I'll have my dance out at any rate, so rouse up the rakes of mallow, my beauties, so to it we set, and when the Kaleen was getting tired well becomes myself, but I threw my arm around her slender waist and took such a smack of her sweet lips, that the hall resounded with the report, fetch me a glass of the best, says I to a little fellow who was hopping about with a tray full of all sorts of drink, fetch it yourself, Felix Donovan, who's your servant now, says the chap, docking up his chin as impudent as a tinker's dog. I felt my fingers itching to give the fellow a the day in the ear, but I thought I might as well keep myself paceable in a strange place so I only gave him a contemptible look, and turned my back upon him. A thump, Felix Jewel, whispered Eddie in my ear, you've lost your power over the fairies by that misfortunate kiss, diaul There's two of Gahoon's gifts gone already, thinks I, if you'll take my advice, says Eddie, you'll be off out of this as fast as you can. The Sora foot I'll stir out of this. Says I unless you come along with me Ma Callie, and as my pretty girl, I wish you could have seen the deluding look she gave me as leaning her head upon my shoulder she whispered to me in a voice sweeter than music of a dream, Felix dear, I'll go with you all the world over, and the sooner we take to the road the better, steal you out of the door, and I'll follow you in a few minutes. Accordingly I sneaked away as quietly as I could they were all too busy with their diversions to mind me and at the door I met Edie with her apron full of gold and diamonds now said she where's the campaign that whom gave you here it is safe enough I answered pulling it out of my breeches pocket well now tell it to become a coach and four i did as she desired me and in a moment there was a grand coach and four prancing horses before us you may be sure we did not stand admiring very long but both stepped in and away we drove like the wind, until we came to a high wall, so high that it tired me to a look to the top of it, step out, now, says she, but mind not to let go your held of the coach, and tell it to change itself into a ladder, I had my lesson now, the coach became a ladder, reaching to the top of the wall, so up we mounted, and descended on the other side by the same means, There was then before us a terrible dark gulf over which hung such a thick fog that a priest couldn't see to bless himself in it. Call for a winged horse, whispered Eddie. I did so, and up came a fine black horse, with a pair of great wings growing out of his back, and ready bridled and saddled to our hand. I jumped upon his back, and took Eddie up before me, when, spreading out his wings, he flew flew, without ever stopping until he landed us safe on the opposite shore. We were now on the banks of a broad river. This, said Eddie, is our last difficulty. The horse was changed into a boat, and away we sailed with a fair breeze for the opposite shore, which, as we approached, appeared more beautiful than any country I had ever seen. The shore was crowded with young people dancing, singing, and beckoning us to approach. The boat touched the land, I thought all my troubles were past, and in the joy of my heart I leaped ashore, leaving Eddie in the boat, but no sooner had my foot parted from the gunnel than the boat shot like an arrow from the bank, and drifted down the current. I saw my young bride wringing her fair hands, weeping as if her heart would break, and crying, Why did you quit the boat so soon, Felix? Alas! Alas! We shall never meet again. And then with a wild and melancholy scream she vanished from my sight. A dizziness came over my senses. I fell upon the ground in a dead faint, and when I came to myself I found myself all alone in my boat, with three thundering big conger eels fast upon my lines, and now, neighbors, you have all my story about the giant stairs, draw it gently, Joseph Hume's attention having been drawn to the great insecurity of letter envelopes, as they are now constructed, has submitted to the postmaster general a specimen of a new safety envelope, he states that the invention is entirely his own, and that he has applied the principle with extraordinary success in the case of his own breeches pocket, from which he defies the most artful dodger in the world to extract anything. We can add our testimony to the UN for property of Joe's monetary receptacle, and we trust that his excellent plan may be instantly adopted, that present there is immense risk in sending enclosures through the post office, for all the letter carriers are aware that there is nothing easier than fashionable movements. Yesterday Patty Green Esquire, called at, the Great Mogul, where he played two games at Bagatelle, and went, Yorkshire, for a pot of dog's nose, he smoked a short pipe home, on Tuesday Charles Mears, I am accompanied by Jeremiah Donovan, called at the residence of Paddy Green, Esquire, in Bear Street, to inquire after the health of Master P. Green, Master James Mark Anthony George Finch has succeeded Bill Jenkins as errand boy at the butter shop in Great Wild Street. This change had long been expected in the neighborhood. On Friday Paddy Green, Esquire, did not rise till the evening. A slight disposition to the prevailing epidemic, influenza, is stated to be the cause. He drank copiously of rum and water with a piece of butter in it. On Thursday last the lady of Paddy Green, personally attended to the laundry, a fortnight's wash took place, when Mrs. Briggs, the charwoman, was in waiting. Mrs. P. Green, with her accustomed liberality, sent out for a quarter of gin and a quarter of an ounce of brown reppie. Charles Mears. I am M. Jeremiah Donovan yesterday took a short walk and a short hike together. It is confidently reported that at the close of the present Covent Garden season that Mr. Ushant Sniggers will retire from the stage, of which he has been so long a distinguished ornament. We have it from the best authority that he purposes going into the retail coal and tater line. Lines on Miss Adelaide Campbell. My Sir Lumley Skeffington, Bart super-celestial is the art she practices, transcending far all other living actresses, her father's talent Mother's Grace composes Stevens figure, with John's Roman nose, Punch's letter-writer, dear Punch, venerable Nosy, by the bye, was or an ancestor of yours, talking of ancestors, why do the airshire folks speak of theirs as forbears forbears, it sounds very ursine, but to our muttons, as my old French master used to call it, do you do anything in the classico-historical line? For the Shavari'sk enlightenment of the British public, if so, here is a specimen of a work in that style. Done out of the original, the death of Caesar, a touch of the classical in the vulgar tongue. When he beheld the hand of him he had so loved raised against him, Caesar's heart was filled with anguish, and uttering the deep reproach and vow to Brutus, he shrouded his face in his mantle, and fell at the foot of Pompey's statue, covered with wounds. Thus, in the zenith of his glory, perished Caius Julius Caesar, the conqueror of the world, and the eloquent historian of his own exploits, Spitflick had his established says my original. He was done for, he got his gruel, and inserted his pewter in the stucco. B.C. 44. Perhaps you may not receive the above, but, sticking his spoon in the wall, reminds me of a hint I have to offer you. Did you ever see any Apostle Spoon's old things with saints carved on their handles? which used to be presented, at christenings, and see, now I think you might make your fortune with His Royal Highness of Cornwall, on the occasion of his christening, by getting together a set of spoons to present to him, and I would suggest your selection of the most notorious spoons, such as the delectable Sadler Knight, Peter Borthwith, calculating Joey, the Colonel, Ben Disraeli, and see, you might even class them, Putting Sir Andrew Agnewin as a grave-wise spoon, a teetotal chief as a teaspoon, spoon wakley, being a deserter, as a dessert-spoon, Disraeli, being so amazingly soft, as a pep-spoon, and see, and see, send them with punches dutiful congratulations, and you will infallibly get night, but don't take a barone apety, my respectable friend, for I hear that, like my friend Sir Moses, you are inclined to Judaism-Judaism. May the shadow of your nose never be less, and heaven send that you may take this up after dinner. Farewell. Had I seen that line before? P-O-L-I-C-H-I-N-I-C-U-L-U's. is a lucky fellow. We opened his letter after the pleasant discussion of a boiled chicken. Education of punch. Cupid's bow. Sir James Graham was conversing the other day with Disraeli on what he designated the crooked policy of Lord Palmerston. What could you expect but a warped understanding? replied the Hebrew Adonis, from such certainly not better late than never, Sir Figaro Lori was condoling with Hobler on the loss of the Baronetke by the late Lord Mayor. Hobler replied that the loss of the title was not by the late Lord Mayor but by the late Prince of Wales. But, as he sagely added, Sir Peter has placed Hobler on truth free list, a slight contrast, look on this picture and on this the counterfeit presentment of Prince Albert hounds and the poor in the Assyrian Oak's union. The sleeping beds which are occupied by the prince's beagles and her majesty's dogs are in five compartments at the extremity of the hovels the latter being well supplied with water and paved with asphalt. the bottoms having good paws, to ensure their dryness and cleanliness, the hovels enter into three green yards, roomy and healthy, in the one at the near end a rustic ornamental seat has been erected, from which her majesty and the prince are accustomed to inspect their favourites. The boiling and distemper houses are now in course of erection, but detached from the other portion of the building, from the sporting magazine, extracted in the Times of December 3, 1841. I know the lying-in ward, there is but one, which is small, Another room is used when required. There are two beds in the first. The walls, I should say, were clean, but at that time they could not be cleansed, as it was full of women. The room was very smoky and uncomfortable, the walls were as clean as they could be under the circumstances, I had always felt dissatisfied with the ward, and many times said it was the most uncomfortable place in the house, it always looked dirty, there have been six women there at one time, two were confined in one bed, it was impossible entirely to shut out the infection, I have known fifteen children sleep in two beds, from the sworn evidence of Mrs. Elizabeth Gain, late matron, and Mr. Adams, late medical attendant, that the Savinox Union extracted from the times of December 2nd, 1841, on snuff, and the different ways of taking it. Snuff is a sort of Freemasonry amongst those who partake of it. Those who do not partake of it cannot possibly understand those who do. It is just the same as music to the deaf dancing to the lame or painting to the blind. Snuff takers will assure you that there are as many different types of snuff takers as there are different types of women in a church or in a theater or different species of roses in the flower bed of an horticulturist, but the section of snuff takers has, in common with all social categories, its apostates, its false brethren, for as sure as you carry about with you a snuff box, of copper, of tortoise shell, or of horn the material matters absolutely nothing, you cannot fail to have met upon your path a man who carries no snuff box, and yet is continually taking snuff. The man who carries no snuff box is an intimate nuisance a hand-in-hand hand annoyance a sort of authority's Jeremy Diddler to all snuff takers. He meets you everywhere. The first question he puts is not how you do. He assails you instantly with, have you such a thing as a pinch of snuff about you? It is absolutely as if he said, I have no snuff myself. But I know you have and you cannot refuse me levying a small contribution upon it. If it were only one pinch. But it is to it is four it is eight, it is all the week, all the month, it is all year round. The man who carries no snuff box is a regular Captain Machith the licensed Paul Clifford to everyone that does. He meets you on the highway, and summonses you to stop by demanding your snuff box or your life. A man can easily refuse to his most intimate friend his purse, or his razor, or his wife, or his horse, but with what decency can he refuse him or to his coolest acquaintance even a pinch of snuff? It is in this that the evil pinches. The snuff taker who carries no snuff box is aware of this and woe to the box into which his fingers gain admission to a levy the pinch his nose distrains upon. There is no man who has the trick so aptly at his fingers ends of absorbing so much in one given pinch. As the man who carries no snuff box, the quantity he takes proves he is not given to samples. Properly speaking he is the landlord of all the boxes in the kingdom. Those who carry snuff boxes are only his tenants, and hold them merely by virtue of a rack rent. Under him, he is a perpetual plunderer, a petty purloiner, pinching petitioner in form of paper, is a contraband dealer in snuff. However, he is in general noted for his social qualities. He is affable, mild, harmless, insinuating, yielding, and submissive. He never fails to compliment you upon your good looks, and wonders in deep interest where you buy such excellent snuff. He agrees with you that Sir Peter Laurie is the first statesman of the day, and flies into the highest ecstations when he learns that it is some of George IV's sold-off stock. He even acknowledges that universal suffrage is the only thing that can save the nation, and affects to be quite astonished that he has left his box behind him. He will beg to be remembered to your wife, and leaves you after begging for the favor of another pinch. Whereas the man whose nature would not be susceptible of a pinch when invoked in the name of his wife. Goldsmith recommends a pair of boots, a silver pencil, or a horse of small value. As an infallible specific for getting rid of a troublesome guest. He always had the satisfaction to find he never came back to return them. But with the man who carries no snuff box this specific would lose its infallibility. It would be folly to lend him your snuff box. For at this price snuff would lose all its flavor. All its perfume for him. The best box to give him would be perhaps a box on the ear. If he were obliged to buy his own snuff, it would give him no sensation. The strongest would not make him sneeze, or wring from the sensibility of his eyes the smallest tribute to its pungency. He would turn up his nose at it, or, at the best, use it as sand dust to receive his washerwoman's bills with. These feelings aside, the man who carries no snuff box is a good member of society, that is to say, quite as good a one as the man who does carry a snuff box, he is in general a good friend as long as he has the entree of your box, a good parent, a good tenant, a good customer, a good voter, a good eater, a good talker, and especially a good judge of snuff, he knows by one touch, by one sniff, by one coup d'oeil, the good from the bad, the old from the new, the fragrant from the filthy, the color which is natural from the color which is colored, if any one should want to allay in a stock of snuff, let him take the man who carries no snuff with him, his it sticks it may be relied upon with every certainty, he will choose it as if he were buying it for himself, and in return will never forget to look upon.